0: Good morning, church. How are y'all doing this morning? Y'all doing all right? And I hope you're doing well. If you uh, got your Bibles, go ahead and take those. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. I want to say uh, a special welcome to you if you're a first-time guest here this morning. Welcome to Connection Church. My name is Blake. I get the privilege to be one of the pastors here, and, and uh, I'm so excited about teaching God's Word this morning. Uh, man, so excited about what all God's doing uh, in our church and through our church. Uh, I really do believe the best is yet to come. We uh, have, I've been in heart and soul the last few weeks. Uh, we have heart and soul going on right now, and we've got about 47 people coming through heart and soul. And, you know, it, it's not always about number, but it, numbers, but it is about people. And, uh, man, I never want us to lose sight of that. And even this morning, as I see people uh, serving, man, this morning, people wearing orange shirts and blue shirts out front, and we got a security team that's kind of walking through the building and even just sitting there in worship, listening to our worship team. And I'm so excited that we have people that are heart and soul with God's mission, God's plan in our church. And I'm so excited to see people uh, coming into our church. And I just want to celebrate that, man. How awesome is that, that God is just blessing and it's just awesome to see. I want to um, pray for us and then uh, we'll kind of dive into God's word. Uh, let's pray together real quick. God, we, uh, we love you. And I'm so thankful for God, your son, Jesus, and I'm thankful for your word, that we even have your word, that you wrote a book, that you want to make yourself known, that we can know you, that you put your spirit in people and indwell in people, that you're here now where one or more gathered, God, you're there. You're here this morning and we lean into your word, we ask you to speak to us through your word, God, through your spirit in our hearts and we love you so much, Christ's name we pray, amen. Had a childhood hero growing up, made a really big impact in my life, his name was Goldberg, any wrestling fans in the house, 80s babies, 90s babies. WCW. Man, what an interesting era that was. I remember being a kid growing up watching wrestling on TV. And remember Goldberg, one of my favorite wrestlers, the jackhammer, the spear. And I just loved watching him. And I remember he came to Statesboro and my dad got invited to go meet him. I guess, I don't know how my dad knew somebody that knew somebody that knew somebody, but he did. We got invited there and he took me there. I remember walking in and meeting Goldberg for the first time, and that was quite the experience, but I remember he was a little bit shorter than he looked on TV. He was still a pretty big boy, but he did not look as big as he was on TV. Maybe maybe in your life you've met a celebrity. Maybe not a celebrity, but somebody you just look up to, and you meet them for the first time, and you think, well, I did not expect them to look like this. Or maybe you talk to someone on the phone or through email, but then you finally see them. That's called seeing them in their true light. This morning, Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to see him in his true light. They are questioning his leadership. They're wondering what, why he's making the decisions he's making, and they're starting to question him. And he wants them to see that he is the real deal. He is not a fraud. He cares about them As a church. And we see this in scripture this morning. Verse 12 says Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened up a door for me, the gospel started to take root in Troas and he was evangelizing people. People were coming to the faith. And Paul went there to meet Titus because Titus carried a painful letter to the Corinthians. And they didn't have phone. And Paul was supposed to meet Titus here in Troas and find out what's going on in the church of Corinth. And he wanted to know, man, how are these people doing? But Titus did not show up in verse 11. Uh, Verse 13, Paul says, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. I did not find him there. I could not find out about the church in Corinth. And so I said goodbye to them. And went to Macedonia. And so we have a open door in Troas. But we have a troubled heart in Paul. And he has no peace of mind. Because he's still wanting to know. What about these people in Corinth? He's evangelizing in Troas. But he has a pastor's heart in Corinth. And he wants to find out what's going on there. And so he has a troubled heart. And he shows us what it looks like to love God's people. Because the church in Corinth was... Messy people, because that's all that exists is messy people. But he loved them anyway, and his heart was uh, on set on them anyway. And he says this in verse 14, "Thanks be to God. No matter what I'm going through, I can praise God because He's sovereign over all situations and who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. And he uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. This is Paul's illustration. A triumphal procession. You know, when when there's a victory, it's time to celebrate. You know, when the Braves won the World Series, they lined up and they paraded through the streets of Atlanta. And there was celebration and music and applause. And they are celebrating their victorious win, the champs. And when a general, a Roman general went to war and he was victorious, they had what they call a triumphal procession. And the general would take the captives that they caught, they would line the horses and buggies up, and they would roll through the streets of Rome, and they would light incense in cisterns and celebrate and this smell as they go through the streets and they would throw flowers in the horses' hooves would crush these flowers and this aroma would go and they would have captives cuffed in the back. And it was a victorious parade. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, man, I'm following Jesus as his captive." The only difference is Jesus rips the cuffs off, and he's sacrificed in my place, and now I follow him everywhere, and as I follow him, I am a candle for Jesus, giving off the aroma of Christ to everybody around me, spreading his knowledge to everybody, and so he doesn't just show us how to love God's people. He shows us that we should proclaim God's gospel. Everywhere we go, we spread the aroma of Jesus everywhere. And as we do, we let God work. Verse 15 says, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. And that's really all that matters. As long as God is pleased with me, nothing else really matters. But among those who who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Some people are being saved, some people are perishing, but Jesus is glorified either way. The knowledge of the gospel brings some people to life The knowledge of the gospel brings some people face-to-face with their sin and face-to-face with death, but our job's not to be God. Our job is just to be faithful. In verse 16, he says, To the one, we're aroma that brings death. But to the other, an aroma that brings life. If you were a captive in a triumphal procession and they were going through the streets celebrating, to some, it was an aroma of victory and life. But if you were a captive, it was a reminder of your death. And that's the gospel. First Corinthians 1.18 says it like this. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those that are being saved, it's the power of God. To some people, the gospel is foolishness. But to some people, it is sweet. And our job is to spread the aroma of the gospel everywhere we go. And as we do, we lean on Jesus. At the end of verse 16, he says, Who is equal to such task? Who's equal? Who's worthy to do such a thing, to spread the gospel to everybody? Who would even be worthy for that? You know, I bet the woman at the well didn't feel worthy. You know, I bet Peter who said, Depart from me, I am a sinner. I bet he didn't feel worthy. And there was a tax collector who would not look up to heaven, but he beat his chest and and said, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. But God used all of these people to spread the aroma of his knowledge to other people. Verse 17 says, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. We do not water down wine to make a better profit. We're not peddlers. We're not making the gospel about us. On the contrary, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. We are sincere that it is all about Jesus. And we remember the why behind the what. We're not doing this for us. We're doing this for Christ, Paul says. There is no selfish gain. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Has our relationship gotten so bad that I have to have an outside party to vouch for me? Paul says, have we proved ourselves by now? It'd be like Michael Jordan going to play baseball and coming back to the NBA and looking at him and saying, Hey, Michael, we're going to have to see if you still got what it takes. We're going to have to send some scouts to check you out. It'd be like Steph Curry doing the three-point contest next year. And then telling him, hey, uh, Steph, mind practicing a little bit so we can watch to see if you have what it takes. That's dumb. They got what it takes. They have proven their point. They have proven their, how, their skills. He says, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation for you? And letters of recommendation were common because, man, you didn't want false teachers to get into the church. You couldn't pick up the phone and say, hey, church of jerusalem what about this peter guy he's over here trying to preach i'm not sure about him or maybe you we've all gotten had to write letters of recommendation i've had to do that uh, for a few people in my life or maybe we all know what it's like for people to say hey i want to put you down on a for a reference for this job i'm getting and there's always some people that say hey i want to put you down for a reference and there's some people you're like yeah man sure there's always that one person that's like, hey, you mind if I put you down for reference and in your mind you're like, ooh, and you're thinking, man, uh, yeah, sure, yeah, go ahead and do that. But you're like, man, maybe they won't call me. I don't want to tell them the truth about this person. Letters of recommendation aren't bad, but boasting in credentials and boasting in letters are bad. And there was uh, some big A, there some super apostles in the church of Corinth that had some false teaching and they were proud of themselves proud of their credentials, proud of their letters. It's kind of like the 50-year-old man still wearing his high school letterman jacket. Just can't get out of high school. I'm the best football player that ever came through Toombs County. You're like, dude, you're average. Take your jacket off, okay? Just boasting in yourself. And this is what was going on. In verse two, you, he says, you yourselves are our letter. You're our letter. It's written on your hearts known and read by everyone. It'd be like Billy coming and planting a church and then going away from a year and then trying to come back and we're like, hey man, I'm not sure about you. Well, God has used him to plant a church, maybe, unless he's sinned or does something bad, maybe we should be sure about him. Paul says this, listen, you want to see a transcript, I'm looking at transformation. You want to see degrees, I've got disciples. You want to see a piece of paper, I've got people. You're my letter. You're proof that our is legit. You're proof that God is using our ministry to do a work in your lives. Verse 3, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Ezekiel prophesied this in the Old Testament. Ezekiel says, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, and I will remove from you a heart of stone and put in you a heart of flesh. And Paul says, this is happening. And not only is it happening, it's happening through our ministry. It's happening, you are God's living letters. Living stones, and Paul says, Jesus is the author of this letter. The author and perfecter of our faith. Paul was just the mailman. He says, this is a result of our ministry. The Holy Spirit is the ink. The Spirit of the living God and the human heart is the paper. It's not tablets of stone like the Ten Commandments, but it is on the human heart. Like a a typewriter impresses ink into a paper, the Holy Spirit has impressed the gospel in your hearts through the Spirit, through our ministry. This is what's happening. One commentator says, paper receives ink but remains lifeless. But the heart that receives the spirit comes to life. And when the Holy Spirit writes Jesus on your heart, everything changes. What once once was a burden now becomes a blessing. And all of a sudden, what once was I have to is now I get to. You know, telling me, Blake, you have to go to church and you have to obey God is like telling me, Blake, you have to kiss your wife. I don't have to. I enjoy that. I might want to get me a kiss tonight before I go to bed. I might have to hold her down. I don't know, but I will get one. Verse four, he says, such confidence we have through Christ before God. Christ gives us this confidence that we have. You see, Jesus makes fit those who are unfit. God does not look down from heaven and want us on his team because of how awesome we are. Like God's not in heaven and he's not looking down and going, Holy Spirit, you see that? That's Blake Cardiman. He's so awesome. We need him on our team. That's that's not what happened. It's more like, oh God, he, he needs some help. You know, it's not that we have, that we're awesome or that we're fit. It's that he is awesome and that he is fit and he makes us fit. Verse 5, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. The ability to do something successfully. Paul says, I'm not confident in myself. I used to be back in Acts 7 when I had Stephen killed but God put me on my back in Acts 9. Even in Philippians 3, we see Paul say this, I had it all, but all that I had was nothing without Jesus. It's not about my credentials. It's about my God and my Savior. Verse 6, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The Spirit, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul says he gives us confidence From his spirit before men. And he's reconciled us to be ministers of reconciliation. God's the one who gave me this ministry. And it's not my message. It's not my credentials. It's God's gospel. And it's the same that changed my life. And it's clearly changed your lives too. This is the work of the spirit. Verse 7. Now if the ministry that revealed or brought death. Revealed death. Which was engraved in letters of stone. The Ten Commandments. If the Ten Commandments came with glory so the Israelites could look, couldn't look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit even be more glorious? Paul says, listen, the law demands obedience, but the Holy Spirit impels obedience. The law was written on tablets of stone, but the Holy Spirit impresses them on your heart. If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious... How much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? You see, the law isn't bad, but the law makes known sin and shows us God above us and God against us. But the gospel makes known grace and it shows Emmanuel, God with us and God for us. Verse 10, for what was glorious has no glory in comparison with the surpassing glory. Paul says this, there ain't even no comparison. That's what he says. It's like the moon and the sun. Both have light. Both are great. The sun is bigger. The sun is, is better in comparison. Actually, the moon gets its light from the sun. It'd be, like, it'd be like when the Android users finally cross over to iPhone. Like both have a top of glory, but once you go iPhone, you're like, man, what was I thinking? There's just no comparison. It's like taking a flashlight and going outside at 12 o'clock in the middle of the day and turning your flashlight on. It is shining, but there is no comparison. This is bigger. This is better. 11, if what was transitory, a shadow came with glory, how much greater is the glory that's going to last? He says, listen, the old covenant wasn't given just to last. It was given to point us to someone who does. His name is Jesus. Verse 12, therefore, since we have such a hope and we're very bold. Because he says this, we have access like never before. And so we can be bolder than we've ever been. It's when you know what you have in Jesus. And it's when you're aware of what God isn't just doing. He's not just with us, but he's in us. You can have confidence to be who he's called you to be and to do what he's called you to do. This is where we get our confidence. Verse 13, we're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. Paul's like, bro, we've got full access to God. He tore the tents down and the tabernacles down. The Ark of the Covenant's gone. He dwells in you. He dwells in me. This is where we get our confidence. But their minds, 14, were made dull for this day. The same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It's not been removed because only in Christ it's taken away. People who are still holding on, people who are holding on to law for righteousness are blind to what it actually points to. The law was not given to make anybody righteous. They knew that. It points out your need of a savior. But the natural disposition of the heart is self-work's righteousness. You try to earn God's favor, as how it's always been. Verse fifteen, even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. It's spiritual blindness. You're trying to earn something that wasn't meant to be earned. Verse sixteen. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Paul says, "Turn to Jesus." In Moses, he would turn in the tent of meeting. He'd have a veil over his face and he would turn and he would remove his veil. And that's a picture of the veil on our hearts. Your heart is spiritually blind, but when you turn to Jesus, Jesus removes the veil. and He makes you see clearly. Verse 17, now the Lord of the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Paul says this, turn to Jesus and you get set free. You get set free, verse 18, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image that comes from the Lord who is spirit. He says, turn to Jesus, you get set free, and then you behold Jesus. If you beholded the face of Moses, it would kill you. You behold the face of Jesus, and it'll transform you into the image of Christ. If you wanna grow in your relationship with God, you look to Jesus. You wanna be more holy, look to Jesus. That's the key to living the Christian life As we literally behold Jesus. And Paul shows us a few things in this passage, and real quickly, I wanna give them to you. One is this, he shows us a fragrant life. God used Paul to spread the aroma of the knowledge of God everywhere he went, and Paul challenges us with a few things. He challenges us with A, to love God's people. To love God's people, he says, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, He said, Lord had opened a door for me, but I had no peace of mind. And here's the truth. Paul let the Corinthians into his heart. And here's the truth. The Corinthians gave Paul a hard time. He wrote to them with tears. And he's sitting in Troas, but his heart is still in Corinth. And until you've had to love someone who is hard to love, have you ever really loved anybody at all? Because real love kicks in when people are unlovable. And Paul teaches us to love God's people sacrificially. His love for the church in Corinth cost him a few things. It cost him tears. It cost him trials. It cost him trips and peace of mind. And this is very challenging to us. You say, Blake, how in the world can we forgive people like Paul talks about? How can we love people who have hurt us or sinned against us? How did Paul do it? I believe he did it because he viewed himself as the chief of sinners. The gospel was his power to do everything that he did in his life. You know, scripture says that Mary was anointing the feet of Jesus. And she was anointing his feet and everybody everywhere was questioning her, why is she doing this? And Jesus steps in and says, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little's, forgives little, but whoever's been forgiven much loves much, and listen, it is in the light of your own sin that helps you love people in their sin. And what Paul teaches me personally here is what's easiest isn't what's always best. You know, it had to be easier to stay in Troas where the gospel is flourishing and people are getting saved and God is moving. It had to be easier to stay there. But his heart was with the Corinthians, And you know, the the imagery that kept coming to my mind as I read this was when Jesus talks about leaving the 99 for the one. Sometimes it feels like it'd be easier to say, you know what, forget the one. I ain't worried about the one, I'm gonna worry about the 99. But when you realize you are the one, it changes everything. And when you realize what Jesus has done for you, it changes everything in how you want to do for others. And I feel like that's what, Really, really changed his heart, and so I'd ask you: How does Paul's love for the church of Corinth challenge you personally? What would change in your life if you loved people the way Christ loved you? Does your love for people lead you to spiritual and physical sacrifice? He teaches us to love God's people. Not just that, but B, he teaches us to proclaim God's gospel. He says in verse fourteen. Thanks be to God who leads us as captives and we spread the aroma of his knowledge everywhere. Paul knew that what his calling was. To be a fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere he went, here's the truth. God wants to use you to spread the knowledge of Jesus everywhere. And people cannot sense the beauty of the gospel if they do not know about it. Romans 10, 14 through 15 says, how can they call on the one that they do not believe in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can anybody preach to anyone unless they're sent? How beautiful are the feet that bring good news, and God is sending you. He wants to use you. And to follow him in victory is to be a fragrance of him to people around you. Fragrance is a sensual language. It sticks with us. It hits the senses. Like cookies being took out of the oven. You ain't got to guess what it is. You smell it. Like a farmer that uses chicken poop to fertilize. That's the worst smell in the history of mankind. It is awful. You don't have to guess. You know exactly what it is. And God wants us to smell like gospel everywhere we go. We live it. We share it. Who is not believing because you're not sharing? When people look at you, do they see a fragrant life? Do you bring a sense of Jesus everywhere you go, your house, your work, your school? He teaches us to love God's people. He teaches us to preach God's gospel. But see, He teaches us to depend on Jesus. Verse 16, he says, "Who's equal for such task? Who is worthy? I love 1 Corinthians 15, 9. He says, for I am the least of the apostles. I do not deserve to be called an apostle. In Colossians 1.12, he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. He's worthy. And he makes us worthy. Blake, I, I don't have what it takes. Good. That's what God's looking for. God isn't interested in how great you are. He's interested in you seeing how great he is. Remember this, but before you can be sufficient in Christ, you gotta first be insufficient with self. God is using no one who does not need him. That person does not exist. And so if you're having feelings of inadequacy to do what God is calling you to do, that's not wrong, that's actually right. Like ministering to your kids. The first time I ever did a family worship night with my kids, I think I spanked them and sent them to their room. God, I need your help. I know Ezekiel, but I cannot change my kid's heart. Or leading and serving in the church to messy people. That can be difficult, and you need God's help. You're not adequate. Or sharing your faith. Well, I don't really know how to share my faith. Have you tried? Have you leaned on God to help you? God wants you dependent on him. This is why being spiritually neutral is so dangerous, isn't it? It's like when you first learn how to swim, you don't know how yet, you, jump, you go to the, the diving board and you're like, you're, the diving board's going up and you're scared to death. But then you jump in and you don't die. And then you start to realize, I think I got this. Then the floaties come off. And you're more independent than you was dependent. And that's how the Christian life can be. Preaching sermons in your own power. Reading the Bible in your own power. Doing the right things and going to church in your own power. But God does not want you to do anything apart from Him, He wants you to be dependent on Him. And that's why being spiritually neutral is so dangerous. I say, God, help me never to get to that place. Help me to be burdened for you. Second Corinthians 1:9, Paul is going through hell and back. And he says, he says, This: We 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 received a sentence of death, but it's okay. It happened that we might not rely on ourselves but instead rely on God. And the only thing God needs is for us to come to the end of ourselves. And it's when you come to the end of yourself that God is going to use you the most. And so that's the question is, how how are your excuses making this about you instead of God? What do your excuses reveal about your lack of trust in him? What would change in your life if you believed Your ability to do what God was calling you to do came from God Himself and not your fleshly athleticism or fleshly knowledge. You know, here's something that's awesome to me. Sometimes it's our excuses not to do something that is God's requirement to do something greater than we ever dreamed of. He doesn't need us to be awesome, He needs us to be faithful. So many times I've looked at God and said, God, I don't got this. And I feel like God's saying, now we're talking. Now I can use you. I can use that person. But not only a fragrant life, he shows us to a solid ministry. And here's what I want you to get your eyes on. To be a Christian is to have a ministry. Equip the saints for the work of ministry. You're the saints. You have a ministry. Everybody who is a follower of Christ has a ministry. And Paul's ministry was questioned. He was becoming questioned, and he, he, they failed to see that God looks on the heart. And what he shows us is a picture of countercultural leadership and countercultural wisdom. Here's some things that Paul had that proved his leadership was legit. A, he had living credentials, living credentials. Paul said, you are our letter. I see the transformation in your life. You are our letter of recommendation. Paul says, you want to see my credentials? Go look in the mirror. You are my credentials. Here's the truth. The greatest success in the kingdom won't be your impact on paper. It'll be your impact on people. It won't be on how many degrees you have. It'll be on how many disciples you've made. It won't be how many times you've read the Bible. It'll be... How in the world are you serving people? As a church, it will not be the numbers of our seating capacity. It will be the numbers of our sending capacity. It won't be simply how much we learned about the gospel. It will be how we lived in light of the gospel. You see, church, people are the mission. It's people that's made in his image. It's people that's lost in sin. It's people that need the gospel. It's people that's gonna go to heaven, people that will go to hell, people that need a savior. Jesus died for a people. That's why Jesus said, go make disciples of people groups of all nations. Your faith should be a conduit that the gospel flows through into the lives of other people. Do you have living credentials? Whose life has been changed with the gospel because of you? Whose life will be changed this year because of you? Because you're a conduit that the gospel of Jesus flows through and reaches other people. Whose life will change? He had living credentials. Not just that, but B, he was confident in Christ. Verse Chapter 3, verse 4 says, Such confidence we have through Christ before God. The content of Paul's confidence was Christ himself. You know, this is the story of the Bible, isn't it? God taking ordinary people, doing extraordinary things, and then giving all the glory to himself. That's all through the Bible. This was true for Moses. God called an old man to declare war on Pharaoh and gave him a cane. There's nothing more intimidated than an old man with a cane. An old man walks in with a cane, you're like, oh my God, this man might beat the heck out of us. That's not very intimidating, but Moses says, God, and I mean, he knew this. Moses was like, oh, God, hello, have you seen me? I do not have great speech. What do you, I don't know what you want me to tell them. What do you want me to tell them? And, and God's like, you tell them I am who I am sent you. So, oh, okay, well, I'll tell them that then. It's like you tell them that the one who's self-sufficient sent you, the one who needs no food, no sleep, no air, no water, you tell them I sent you. And God wanted Moses to know that the most important thing about his ministry was God himself. Second Corinthians twelve nine. even Paul says, "'But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. "'My power is made perfect in weakness. "'Therefore, I will boast all the more about my weakness.'" It's Christ's power that rests on me. David Garland, a commentator, says this, when the God of all things used Moses as a minister, why did he choose for himself a man of stammering speech, a slow tongue? And his answer is because this displayed all the more his divine power. Just as he chose fishermen and tax gatherers to be preachers of truth and teachers of pity, It's by no means of a weak voice and a slow tongue that he put to shame the wise man of Egypt. And Paul agreed that the same applied to God's choice of him to be a minister of the gospel. It's not how great we are, it's how great he is. And that's his story in Philippians 3. He says, I, I had all these things, but I did not have Jesus. Paul says, I'm not great, he's great. And when you lean into that truth, it'll change your life. God does not need your strength. He wants to give you his strength. And this is my story. My credentials aren't that great. I'm so glad that, I'm so glad that God does not need my worldly credentials to use me in a big way in the kingdom. I could see that right now. Billy hired me and he's like, hey, let's, Mr. Hardeman, let's take a look at your credentials. I don't even know. I, I can barely pronounce the word credentials. He's like, hey, let me look at your credentials. I see that you uh Okay, you graduated at the bottom of your class. Okay, check. Montgomery County High School. Okay, where's that at? Okay, check. Not a very good speller. Okay, check. I see you never went to college. Okay, check. Not very good with your hands. Okay. Struggle with addictions growing up and some lust and stuff like that. Okay, You know what? Incredible. You're exactly who we're looking for. Somebody get this man a microphone, get God's word, let him preach God's word to us. That's what's happening. That's, that that, that God would just like flip the script. And it just makes me so happy, man. I mean, like, man, who, who dreams of this? But that is what grace does. This is the work of grace. It meets us where we are. It makes us broken and then uses us for his glory, for his name and his fame. He does in us and through us what we could never do on our own. You see, men throw broken things away, but God never uses anything until he breaks it first. Welcome to the kingdom. This is what he does. The bottom line is a sign that you're adequate for new covenant ministry is realizing that you're inadequate because you know a God that is adequate. Martin Luther says, God created the world out of nothing. So as long as we're nothing, He can make something out of us. God created the world out of nothing. So as long as we're nothing, God can make something out of us. And I'm so thankful for that truth. And so what's your excuses? What's keeping you from being used in the kingdom? Church, I can't wait to see what God does in your life. I can't wait to see what God does through your life. And I can't wait to continue to see what he does in my life, listen. Not just that, but see, he owned his calling. He owned his calling. He loved God's people and he preached God's gospel. We depend on Jesus. See, he owned his calling. Verse six says he made us ministers of the new covenant. And to be a part of the new covenant is to be a minister. Chapter four, verse one. Therefore, since through God's mercy we had this ministry. In chapter five, he calls this the ministry of reconciliation. It says in verse 14, chapter 5, 14, Christ's love compels us. Verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and now gives us the ministry of the reconciliation. And what Paul's saying is this, God rescued us to be a part of the rescue team. Here's the cool thing about the new covenant. God tears the tent down, destroys the tabernacle, Throws the Ark of the Covenant in the trash can, and now he dwells fully in us forever. And he uses us to be ministers of the gospel, gospel agents, God's rescue agents, reconciled people sent out to reconcile others that God uses. We're trophies of grace. Look at what God has done in me. We're tools of grace. Look what God does through me. And we're trophies and we're tools, but we receive grace and now we extend grace. And so my question is, are you on the rescue team? And I feel like God is telling me to tell some of us, it's time to get in the game. There are no bench players. There are no sidelines. To be saved is to be sent. And then lastly, three, a better covenant. He says this in chapter 3, 7 through 9, if you want to go look. But at the end, he says, man, if this, if the law was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? And I want to look at these covenants. A is the old covenant. The law was glorious. Think about Ten Commandments. Think about the, the old covenant. Think about what it did. The law isn't bad. It's just misunderstood. The Ten Commandments were never to be a ladder to climb up to Jesus. They were always to be an x-ray to reveal your heart and show you that you do need Jesus, that you do need a Savior. It was never to be a ladder. It's never to be about performance, but our natural disposition of our heart is self works righteousness, so we take these laws and say, I'm gonna do that to be right with God, and that's not how it works. Just like people today come to church to be made right with God, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. It's to show you that you actually God is holy, you are not, and you need Jesus. That is the whole point. The law cannot save us. What does it do? Well, one, it brings sin to the light, but it doesn't cure sin. At the same time, the law does two things. One, it shows us who we were meant to be, but then two, it shows us everything that we're not. The second thing is it incites us to actually sin more when we misunderstand it. Instead of curing sin, it actually just stirs sin up. It doesn't cure it, but it makes us sin more. Romans 7, 5 says it arouses our sin. It produces self-works righteousness. Paul's testimony is this. All the things that Paul thought was drawing him near to God was actually the very things keeping him away from God. Religion and code kept a veil on his heart for so long until Jesus put him on his back and said, you cannot be good enough for a holy God. And three, it's powerless to change the human heart. Law does not change people's heart. It just doesn't. Laws don't change the underage drinker's heart. No high schooler ever, if you walk up to them and they're at a party and you walk up to them and say, hey, don't you know that you gotta be 21 to drink? No one ever's gonna be like, oh, oh my God, I didn't know that. That Man, I'm so glad you say that. That changes my heart. Nobody ever. They're like, okay, yeah, whatever. We're <laughs> beer pong, bam. You know, that's, that's what they're doing. That doesn't change anybody's heart. You know, the law doesn't change the speed demon's heart. Like, speeders don't care, man. They just don't care. And, like, when, when they see a, a 35 speed limit, they don't care. Especially those dirt road speeders. You ever seen people speed on dirt roads? Those are your psycho. That's like a next level. They don't care about rules. It doesn't change their heart towards that. Smokers do not care if it's a smoke-free campus. Like, we don't care. My dad, was he was at the hospital. They were about to transfer him to Savannah. They rolled him out on a stretcher, and before they put him in the ambulance, he sat up on the stretcher and pulled a cigarette out from God knows where and lit it. I was like, you're on the stretcher. You can't smoke on the stretcher. That's not okay. But he don't care. He's getting a cigarette in. Rules don't change hearts. Laws do not change people's hearts. It's not to, his purpose wasn't to bring righteousness, but revelation. revelation reveals how holy God is and our need for him. But now, now, when we put our faith in Christ, he dwells in us fully and forever. Welcome to the new covenant. B, the new covenant. See, the old covenant reveals, but the new covenant indwells. This is why Paul said in Romans 116, I'm unashamed of the gospel. It's the power of salvation. Here's what the new covenant does. It brings righteousness. In verse 9, it says righteousness, the law on its own, would eliminate sinners, but the Holy Spirit in our hearts illuminates sinners. The Holy Spirit takes the blood of Jesus and applies it to your heart and moves you. It gives us permanence. Hebrews 10 says the law was a shadow, a shadow but not the realities themselves. But we live in, in the age now where we had the reality, Jesus and his spirit poured out. It brings us hope. Baby in a manger, that is God with us. Jesus on a cross, that is God for us. And the Holy Spirit, that is God in us. And it gives us great hope and it gives us confidence. Verse 12 says, Jesus is the victor, leading us in triumphal procession. It replaces our old heart with a new heart. And now our heart beats for the things that God's heart beats for. It brings us freedom. Verse 17 says, now the Lord is spirit, And where the Spirit is, there is freedom. The Holy Spirit positions me in Christ. And when I'm positioned in Christ, I'm free of God's judgment and I'm free of sin. I don't want to do the things that God doesn't want me to do. He's changed my whole entire heart. And now I'm set free. Sin has no bondage on me anymore. And I'm not judged by God in a bad way because the wrath that he owed me was poured out on Jesus. I'm set free and nothing's freer than living free. And it transforms our life. Verse 18 says, when we with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his image. Beholding the glory reflected off of Moses would kill you. But gazing on Jesus will give you life. And what you're beholding is what you're becoming. What has your attention Looking to Jesus is the answer. Tony Marita says, As we gaze on Jesus eating with sinners and scoundrels, we become more loving. As we gaze on Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, we become more compassionate. As we gaze on Jesus preaching boldly to the Pharisees, we become more bold. As we gaze upon Jesus loving children, we become more tender. As we gaze upon Jesus suffering with no vow in return, we learn how to endure hardship." As we gaze upon Jesus forgiving sinners at the cross, we become more forgiven. As we gaze upon Jesus giving up everything for our salvation, we become more generous. As we gaze upon Jesus who rose from the grave, we become more alive in our faith. As we gaze upon Jesus' mercy in restoring Peter, we become more merciful. As we gaze upon his eyes like fire and feet like bronze, we become more pure. This is how we're changed. This is how we are transformed. Holiness is not the way to Christ. Christ is the way to holiness. Are you looking to Jesus? Do you have your eyes set on Christ? Is he the centerpiece of your life? There is one fix to everything that we preached about this morning. One one fix to everything that we've talked about. Letter C, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. We look to Jesus to find life, and we look to Jesus to live life. On the count of three, say Jesus, one, two, three. He is our way to God, and he is God's way to us, and it's not Jesus and, or Jesus or, it's Jesus only. And I wanna remind you of this, to remember, if Jesus is worth anything, then Jesus is worth everything. And so, as we close this morning, I just want you to think, even think about the Ten Commandments. One sin would separate you from God forever, just one. And there's nothing that you could do on your own to get back in right relationship with God. The law proves that, the Ten Commandments show us that. And that is why Jesus died in your place. And here's, here's the thing God won't grade on a curve. He will grade on the cross. Are you under law or are you under grace? Here's the game changer in this passage. It's the power of God in doing something in you and through you you cannot do on your own. It's the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. He gives us a new heart. And so here is some heart questions I have as we close. One, do you have a new heart? Does your heart beat for the things that God's heart beats for? Has He put a new heart in, in you? Two, is there any evidence of the Holy Spirit in you? When you look in your life and you reflect on the things in your heart, is there any birthmarks that you're born again? Is there any reason for anybody to believe that you're really a Christian? Are you under law or are you under grace? And then three, are you putting all hopes for righteousness in Jesus' work on the cross? All hopes for righteousness in Jesus' work on the cross. It is so foolish to think that we could earn something that God came and earned for us. Moses came down off the mountain with 10 commandments. Jesus comes down and fulfills them in your place. God won't grade you on the curve. He'll grade you on the cross. Sin doesn't cancel truth doesn't cancel out sin. If I murder somebody but then I save somebody, me saving somebody doesn't change the fact that I murdered somebody. If I tell a lie, but then I tell a 100 truths, I still told a lie. And there is no curve. And so we're either under grace or under judgment. We're either under the umbrella of Christ or God's wrath still sits on us. And that's what I would tell you this morning, we have a better way. Jesus is that way. He is the lamb. He is the sacrifices. He is the law. He is everything. He is the better Adam. He is everything that the Bible points to and he will be the best thing in your life. Whatever it is that's keeping you from giving your life to Jesus, please listen to me. He is better. He's treasure hidden in a field. He's everything better in your life. Whatever it is that you're holding on to, you let go of that and you turn to Jesus and the veil comes off your hearts and then how once was lost but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see because of what Christ does in me. Let's pray. Maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you say, Blake, and I I have had a veil over my heart. The truth is, is, man, I've, I've been doing religion. I've been trying to be a good person, but the truth is, is I've... I've misunderstood what this was all about. I've never really surrendered my life to Christ's work on the cross in my place. And if that's you this morning, and you say this morning, I wanna give my life to Jesus. I don't wanna be graded on the curve. I wanna be graded on the cross. We just slip up your hand so I can pray for you. I just wanna pray for you. (laughs) Awesome. God, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you, God, for what we have. You indwell us fully and forever. And there's nothing better than that. God, so I, I, I thank you. God, be with us this week. Christ, and we pray. Amen. Love you guys. Y'all have a great day.